0: How many of you recognize the name Robin Leach? Is anybody, I, I heard a couple of Snickers back there. Okay, a couple of you remember Robin Leach. I had said something about that, and Juan looked at me kind of like, who is Robin Leach? And knowing that he's 29 today, we know he's not that young, right? So I think it's all a charade. He knows this. Robin Leach, for those of you who don't know, he was the host of a really popular television program which aired from the 80s, mid-80s, I would say, to the mid-90s. You remember the name of his program? The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Do you remember that show? I used to get a kick out of that, but every episode, this guy, Robin Leach, who had, I mean, he just had the greatest British accent, didn't he? I mean, he just, hearing the guy talk, you thought that he was way smarter than everybody else, but he had this great British accent, and he would take viewers through some of the most extravagant homes, and he would allow viewers to witness the luxurious lifestyles enjoyed by wealthy, Entertainers and business tycoons and professional athletes. Among them were people like Michael Jackson. Of course you all know about his 2,700 acre ranch that was complete with an amusement park and, and all sorts of exotic paintings and very expensive decorations. Donald Trump was also on the show, and of course, he was showcasing his very multiple, very large properties, his extravagant properties, and he had many great things like expensive cars. He had a Boeing 757. They took a tour of Donald Trump's personal helicopter, and this was before he was president, of course, before it was Air Force One. Oprah Winfrey was on the show. Oprah, of course, as you know, has a $90 million home in California, but she also has a 163-acre property in Maui, if you can imagine. So here she is on her 163-acre property in Maui, which she flies to and from on her $42 million private jet. And that was the show. I mean, that's what it was all about. Robin Leach would take viewers on tours of the guest summer homes or their garages filled with really expensive sport cars and their closets full of expensive designer clothing. And so viewers got to tag along as he got onto their private planes and their helicopters and yachts and limousines and all of these things. And so you got to see these expensive homes in the mountains and you saw people who owned their own islands. Islands and even exotic pets. All of these fantastic things. And it seemed like in almost every frame in the show, there was a bottle of champagne somewhere. Did you ever notice that? There was always a bottle of champagne. And every week, millions of people would tune in because they wanted to see how the extremely wealthy lived. I mean, we love to see how rich people live, don't we? We love to see. I mean, who wouldn't want to take a look at P. Diddy's $72 million yacht? I'd kind of like to check that out. I mean, how many of you would like to see the $340,000 car that that guy bought for his kid on his 16th birthday? It's amazing. But it's always been that way. People have a fascination for, for money, and the people who have a lot of money generally like to show how much they have. They like to show it off to everyone. It said that the emperor Caligula had a fetish for gold that was, of course, perverse. Pretty much everything Caligula did was perverse. And one time, Caligula forced his servants to pile up all of his gold reserves, to pile up all of his gold coins purely so that he could get into it naked and roll around because he loved the feeling of gold against his bare skin. He also reportedly fed his favorite horse oats mixed with gold. And he'd often serve his guests loaves of bread made from solid gold, so just so that he could show how wealthy he was. And there was a man named Gordon Bennett in the 1800s whose father had founded the New York Herald. Gordon Bennett, obviously a rich, spoiled young kid, when he became a young man, reportedly one time threw a roll of cash into the fire because it wouldn't fit into his pocket. And the guest who saw it frantically jumped in and tried to grab the roll of cash out of the fire. And Gordon Bennett yelled at that man and said, I wanted it in the fire. That's why I threw it there. He's also the guy who built a yacht which had a special room reserved in it for his cow. Do you know why he wanted a cow on his yacht? He liked fresh butter every morning. He wanted fresh butter. I read that Cleopatra one time wanted to eat the most expensive meal ever. So she removed her huge... Priceless pearls, which were a gift to her from some Eastern king. She crushed them to whatever extent she was able, and she put them into her wine, and then she drank them. She wanted to eat the most expensive meal ever. So extravagant. So wasteful. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells us that there's a real problem with loving money. Did you know that? This is what he says in verse 13: He says, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Friends, can I just tell you that there are people who attend church week in and week out all across the world. They may even have that little fish on the back of their cars that we talk about so often. And these are people who are convinced that they are true believers. And they're convinced that they have genuine faith. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us there are those who call Him Lord, and they even claim to have done many great works on His behalf, but they're not true believers. Jesus tells us that those are the ones who call Him Lord, and ultimately, He says, away from me. I never knew you. I don't know you at all. James tells us that they're deceived. Many of these people Who think that they're true believers are truly deceived. They have been convinced that they have genuine faith, but they really don't. And those are the ones to whom Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. And so as you know, James gives us a series of tests, and we've been going through this series of tests as we've progressed through the book of James, and the intent is to help us to examine our hearts and to find out how genuine our faith really is. That's the point. And I want you to know that there's probably nothing that more clearly reveals the state of the human heart. There is nothing that more clearly reveals the genuineness of faith than a person's view of money and possessions. There are those who claim that they serve God, but in fact they actually serve money. They serve possessions. Jesus said you can't do both. He said it's one or the other. And it's a great way to determine whether or not you have faith that is genuine saving faith. And that's what our passage in James chapter 5 is about today. So I want to take you to verse 1, and we're going to begin there. And this is what it says. James says, come now, and we spoke about this several weeks ago. It means listen closely. It means pay attention, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So James here is addressing the rich people in the church, and he warns them of some impending misery. Now, before we move forward, I think it's really important for us to understand what James means when he says rich. Don't you think we need to define that? If James is telling us that rich people need to weep and howl, I need to know if that's me or not. I mean, am I rich? I need to know that. I'm not rich. In fact, if you were to ask 10 people in this room this morning what it means to be rich, I would bet you that you would get 10 different answers. U.S. News and World Report endeavored to do that very thing just last month, and so they surveyed a group of people, and they asked them, how much money do you need to be rich? Some people said that you're rich if you have $2.3 million in personal net worth. Yeah, that's not bad, And then there were others that said if you make more than $100,000 a year, you're rich. I can tell you that if your household income is more than $622,050, the IRS puts you in the top tax bracket. Not because I personally know that. I'm just saying that I I did some research on that coming up today's message. We do not make $622,050. But if you do, the IRS is going to put you in the top tax bracket because they think you're rich. If you live in a small apartment... In a run-down part of town and you take the bus everywhere you go, you probably think that anyone with a three-bedroom house and two cars in the driveway is rich. See, I think we would all define what it means to be rich in different terms. But I think they're all relative to our own financial position. And that's why I think my personal definition of rich is pretty solid. Do you want to hear it? Anyone who makes significantly more money than I do, anyone who has significantly more stuff than me, that person is rich. It's a pretty good definition. I mean, in Burundi where less than 10% of the population have electricity, and the average income is $663 per year, people would probably say it's better to be a poverty-stricken American than a rich man in Burundi, don't you think? So maybe on second thought, it's not best to define how rich you are my way. Demeter was the Greek goddess of agriculture and of the harvest, She presided over the grains and over the fruitfulness of the earth. And in the springtime, Demeter had a union with Iason. And he was a hero of agriculture. From this union was born one known as Plutus. Plutus was the god of wealth. And it was said that Zeus had stricken Plutus with blindness so that he would indiscriminately give out his wealth and so that he would not favor those who had the appearance of righteousness. And so in most ancient depictions of the god Plutus, he's seen holding a container and it's filled with grain. And I think since his mother was the goddess of agriculture and harvest and his father was a hero of agriculture, it makes sense that Plutus, the god of wealth, was primarily viewed in connection with an abundance of grain and the earth's harvest. I want you to just hold on to that for one moment. I want to take you back now to verse 1. And this is what James says. Come now, listen closely. And who is it that he's talking to? He says, Listen to me, rich people. The word rich here in verse 1 is the Greek word plutos. Do you see? It's the Greek word plutos. So if we are to use that to help us define what it means to be rich, then we are able to see that they are the people who have a great deal of the earth's harvest. They have an excess of the earth's grain. They are those, friends, listen, who have more than they need to survive. Takes a certain amount of provision to survive, doesn't it? It takes a certain amount of food to survive in this world, and in that time, that was what people lived for. They got up to get just enough food to manage to live today. And if you have more than you need, if you have more than it takes to live today, you have what is known as a surplus. Is it possible that we should think of the rich as anyone who has more than they need to survive? Should we think of it in those terms? I mean, if you have more food than you need for today... If you have more clothing in your closet than you need for this week, is it possible that you're rich? And if it is, then today's message is for you. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, You know what? It's good to be content with what you have. And in verse 8 of chapter 6 in 1 Timothy, Paul says, If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. I've got all I need. He says if we have enough to make it until tomorrow, if we have enough to feed and to clothe our families, then that's enough for us, isn't it? He says there's great gain to be had in being content with the little that you have and rather spending your time working on your purity and your godliness rather than attempting to spend all of your time to pile up more food and more clothing for some time down the road. Why? Let me show you why. Take a look at what he says in verse 9. He says, Those who desire to be rich, they do what? They fall into temptation, they fall into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, not the root, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains, many pangs. With the desire for money comes the desire for more money. Did you know that? Do you know what's better than having a $340,000 sports car in your garage? Having two $340,000 sports cars in your garage... And what does James say to those who have more than they need in James 5.1? Look again. This is what he says. He says, do what? Weep, cry out, and howl for the miseries, the terrible circumstances that are coming. Friends, listen. If we are the rich, if the people of America are the rich, if anyone in the world are considered the rich, if they have more than they need, listen to this warning. Weep, cry out, and howl for the miseries, the terrible circumstances that are coming. But I mean, how bad can it possibly be? How bad can it possibly be for the person who has everything? How bad can it possibly get? I mean, they've got the world by the tail. They're traveling around with their surplus of grain, storing it in their multiple properties and mansions. They're taking it to market in their private jets. I mean, what circumstances could ever be so horrific that those who own their own amusement parks, those whose children are driving around in $300,000 sports cars, those who travel oceans carefree in their $72 million yachts, those who own seemingly everything, would ever cry out and sob, screaming with misery. The problem is that the road is filled with snares. The road is filled with temptations. You see, with that kind of money, we can buy more of the world's stuff. And we can make ourselves more comfortable here, can't we? So why would we weep? If we can buy more of the world's stuff, and if we can make ourselves more comfortable here, why would we weep? Where's the misery in that? Well, take a look at this. It says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Listen, God provides for the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Did you know that? God shows his mercy on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. He gives us material things so that we can provide for our families. And I want you to know that is a good thing. It is not a bad thing for you to have wealth. It is not a bad thing for you to be blessed. He wants you to care for your families. He wants you to care for those around you. And he wants you to be sure that they have all that they need. That's God's love. That's God's grace. That's his mercy for you. And I want you to know that it's even good for you to plan for your future. It's even good for you to use your resources wisely. But listen to me, we are not to pile up, we are not to hoard the blessing that God has poured out on us. And that's what these people had done. These rich people had stored up their grain and their garments. And ultimately, friends, listen, this is so important. As with everything in this world, those things come to nothing. Do you know that what happens to grain... If you leave it in the storage place long enough, it rots. If you don't use it, it rots. Clothing ultimately will be eaten by moths. Yet, we would rather store it up. We would rather have it in our closets and in our grain silos. We would rather watch it rot. We would rather watch it corrode than to use it, friends, to advance the kingdom of God. Money and all of the earthly things that it buys, it's temporary. I've got news for you. I shared this with a group of guys at our house last week. I said, look, the systems of this world are decaying. They're falling apart. And ultimately, it's coming to an end. I said, we're on a sinking ship. And it doesn't matter whether there's a Republican or a Democrat at the helm. The ship is sinking. It's falling apart. This earth is going to come to an end. This world system is not going to survive. It doesn't matter who's in charge of it. It's not going to survive. It's collapsing. And ultimately, friends, you and I will give an account to God for what we have done with the things that he has entrusted to us. Like the men of the parable of the talents. We need to understand that we're just stewards of all the earthly blessing that God has entrusted to us. And ultimately, at one point, one day, we have to give an account to God for what we've done with those things. We're going to find that when we face judgment, your bank account, your yacht, $340,000 sports car, none of those worldly things, friends, I want you to know this, are going to buy you any favor with God. He's not going to want to ride on your boat He's not going to want to look in your closet. He won't be impressed by any of those things. No matter the extent of your wealth, listen, no matter the beauty of your skills and your talents and your abilities, no matter the nobility of your politics, those things all belong to a system that is collapsing and falling apart. And none of them will save you from the judgment of God. And what's so tragic is the way that the wealthy have used their great blessing. That's the point here. Verse four tells us that the wealthy have increased their wealth by defrauding those who had worked for them. They had withheld wages to their workers. They hadn't paid them fairly. They've hoarded. They've withheld their excess from the poor. And why did they do it? This is the I want to show you. This is so so valuable. How did they use all of the great blessing from God? Take a look at verse 5 here and this is what it says. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Do you see? The day of slaughter here is just simply a graphic reference to the day of judgment. So you can plug in the word day of judgment there. So listen, those who hoard their earthly blessing and hold it back from others are like calves who unknowingly fatten themselves up so that they can be slaughtered. They're making themselves even more accountable, even more guilty in the day of judgment. And why did they do it? It was so that they could live on the earth in luxury. That's what verse 5 tells us. They did it so that they could live in luxury. The Greek word here means softness and delicacy. They wanted to roll around in their gold. They wanted the silk clothing that felt so smooth against their skin. And they have lived in self-indulgence. In this word self-indulgence, there is a sense of excessive comfort. They've piled up their riches so that they could use them, friends, to live in excessive comfort and luxury. That's the problem. So the idea is that they've given themselves over to pursuing every form of pleasure in a world that is worthless and dying. And don't you really see that many times with those who are excessively wealthy? Isn't that what you see? They pursue pleasure. They pursue pleasure. They pursue luxury. And in doing that, they need more and more to satisfy their desires. Jeffrey Epstein is a great example of that. All the luxury wasn't enough. He got more and more perverse. The more he had, the more perverse he became. They deny themselves absolutely nothing in any area of their lives. And soon, they are so indulgent that they are completely out of control. There is nothing that they won't do to satisfy themselves. There's nothing that they won't do to give themselves absolutely every single thing they want. And in doing that, they completely ignore the needs of the people around them. But I think the root of the problem in today's passage is to be found at the end of verse 3. So I want to take you there. And this is what it says. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. It's bad enough that you're laying up treasure to be absolutely non-contributing to the Kingdom of God. That's bad enough. It's bad enough that you'd rather store it up in collapsing barns. It's bad enough that you'd rather watch it rot than to provide for God's eternal work. It's bad enough that you would use the blessing of God's resource to live soft lives of luxury and wanton self-indulgence. But you know what makes it worse? You've done it in the last days. Look, this is really important for us to understand, friends. It seems like now more than any other time in my life, I'm hearing people talking about the fact that we live in the last days. And there's no doubt that that's true. Did you know that? And People are pointing to wars and to earthquakes and even COVID as signs that we're living in the last days. And it, it is absolutely true, friends. We're living in the last days. And then you hear people who point to this event or that event and they say, this is proof we're living in the last of the last days. And that may be true too. I don't know, and quite frankly, neither do, do you or anyone else. I mean, all we know is that since the ascension of Christ, we've been living in the last days. All that means is we're living in the time between His birth and His second coming. Nobody knows when He's coming back, only the Father. But now listen, more now than ever, it's important for us to understand that we're living in the last days, now more than ever, it's important that we use our resources properly. Well, Scott, what should I be doing with my resource? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) I put that in there because I was afraid you might not ask me that. So That's actually in my notes. Earlier this morning, we heard the words of Jesus in Luke 16 where He said, no man can serve two masters. You love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and money. Prior to speaking those words, He told a parable about a dishonest manager. It seems there was a certain rich man who had hired this manager to care for all of his possessions. And unfortunately, the manager was dishonest. He wasted and squandered the assets that had been entrusted to him by the rich owner. The rich man ultimately got word of it. He heard what was going on. He had heard of the manager's abuse of his wealth and of all of his assets, and so he called him, he called the manager, and he said, I want you to account for what you've done. So the manager heard that he was about to be called. He heard that he was about to have to report to the rich man, and he became really worried because he knew what he had done with the rich man's wealth. He knew that he was going to be fired for mismanagement. He knew that he would probably face retribution. He knew that he was too old to find a new job word says that he was too proud to beg, but he knew that soon he'd be unemployed, he'd be unable to care for himself, and so now he's got a dilemma. And so as a shrewd manager, he came up with a plan. And this is what he said. He decided that before he had to meet with the rich master, before he was fired, he would go to each of the people who owed his master money. He would go there to earn favor with them by reducing their debt. So what he did was he went to the one who owed a hundred measures of oil and he said, "I'll tell you what, I'll settle up with you for 50. He cut his debt in half. Give me fifty measures and we'll call it good. To the one that owed a hundred measures of wheat, he said, "Let's just call it eighty and we'll be good." Of course, those who were in debt were just thrilled. I mean, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be great if your banker would come to you and say, "Scott, I know that you owe you know one hundred and twenty thousand dollars on your mortgage. Let's just call it sixty and we'll call it a day." Wouldn't that be great? It'd be fantastic. I wish my bank worked like that. Well, actually, I don't, (laughs) probably. (laughs) So that's what he did. You see, the manager knew that those people whom he had released of so much debt would be very, very grateful, wouldn't they? imagine that? I mean, he had built up goodwill with them so that when he was fired, he could go to them and say, hey, do you remember how I cut your debt in half when you were in a bad spot? Remember that? Well, now I'm in a bad spot. Can you help me out? And he knew by doing that he would win favor with these people. Of course, they were going to be so grateful to have been relieved of such great debt that they would just take care of him and treat him well. They would feed him. I mean, what a great plan. Of course, you may expect the the business owner to be upset by that, but even he was impressed. I mean, what a bold move. And so after telling that parable, Jesus said in verse 8 of Luke chapter 16, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Do you understand what that means? Earthly people? People who don't even have salvation? People who aren't even believers? They're more careful in dealing with their money. They're more careful in dealing with this generation than the people who are saved. And I tell you, listen closely, this is so good. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What a weird thing to say! Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. That's a tricky piece of Scripture, isn't it? Let me help you understand that. What is Jesus' point in this parable? He's telling us to take the wealth... Take the assets that we have in this world, which are ultimately in, worthless in God's economy, the wealth that matters absolutely nothing for kingdom purposes, and use that wealth, use those resources as shrewdly as that manager did. He's, ha- he's saying, how do you do that? Listen, not by storing it up, not by counting your interests, but by using it to make friends who will welcome you to your eternal dwelling when you get to heaven. This world's economy is going to collapse, and he says, take your resources, the temporary resources that you have now, and use it to make friends who will greet you when you get to heaven. That's the point. Now listen, I want to put that in practical terms for you, okay? This is how it works. If God blesses you with a performance bonus at work, what do you do with it? Do you take the bonus and put it into an interest-bearing account so that you can make a little bit more money? and? the worthless cash becomes a little bit more worthless cash down the road when you die and face judgment? Is that what you do with it? Or do you take that bonus and do you use it to buy yourself more designer clothing? Maybe you take the bonus and you use it to buy a yacht so that you can live lavishly in this dying world. I mean, it's all falling apart anyway. You might as well enjoy it while you can, right? Or let me ask you this. Do you take your bonus and do you give it to ministry which uses it to win souls for the kingdom of God? Do you use it to advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ so that you can reach people who are dying in this collapsing world who will be waiting anxiously to meet you in heaven so that they can say to you, I am so Thankful that you used your bonus to help get the gospel message to me. It was that. It was your faithfulness that delivered me from the hands of hell into heaven. In this parable, Jesus says, Give to ministry to win souls that you have friends to meet you in heaven. That's the point of the parable. What about your homes? Should my wife and I use the blessing of our, our nice home to provide seclusion and safety to ourselves? Or do we open it up to fellowship to be an encouragement to the people of our church body? Do we use our food storage to provide a meal for my family for the next five days, for the next week? Or do we use it to invite people into our home to show them generous and loving hospitality and blessing and giving them the very best that we can with our willingness to provide for them whatever we're able? Is that what we do with it? Well, the parable says... Open your home and bless people with a wonderful meal so that they'll remember you and bless you when you get to heaven. That's the point. Invite people to a life group in your home and fellowship with them. Oh, but Scott, they've got a bunch of kids and they're probably going to jump on my expensive sofa and pretty soon it's going to be worn out. And I got these nice trinkets that I found at the, you know, at the antique store several years ago and I spent so much money on them. I like to put them in my curio cabinet where everybody can look at them and be amazed. And I've got all these things. I'm worried that maybe if I have all these people over, they're going to destroy my nice furniture and my nice trinkets use your temporary and earthly sofa use your temporary and earthly trinkets to earn favor for you in heaven do you see hey we we can keep going with this we could say the same thing about our skills and our talents we could say the same thing about our spirit, our spiritual giftings listen do you have the gift of hospitality Well, then don't sit at home with it. Take it and use it to welcome people and to greet them as they come into the church body so that they feel loved and they feel welcome when they get here. Do you have the the ability to properly teach and preach the Word of God? Then don't sit at home in your special room studying the Word of God by candlelight day in and day out and making yourself spiritually fat. Preach the Gospel. Go win souls. And they'll be there to meet you in heaven and to greet you and to thank you. You have the ability to beautifully play an instrument and sing Don't sit at home entertaining yourself. Put your talent to work making friends who will worship with you when you get to heaven. Do you see? I want to share with you in closing the words of Jesus in verse 10 of Luke 16. And this is what he says He says, The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust you with the true riches? Listen, if you take the little that God has given you and you show yourself to be a faithful steward, properly managing his resources to advance his kingdom, I want you to know that he's going to entrust you with more to manage. But if you take your wealth, if you take your home, if you take your skill and your talents, and you lock them away and you hide them away for no one to enjoy but you and your family, you're guilty of mismanaging the resource that God has given you. And you have no reason to think that he would give you more to mismanage. Can I just encourage you? I've been, my wife and I, I, this is something I think that I've just been learning over the last four years that in dealing with offenses to me or to my family and dealing with behavior from my kids or whatever it is, I've been saying that I always want to err on the side of grace. I want to err on the side of showing too much forgiveness, too much mercy, too much grace. Can I encourage you to err on the side of being too generous with the things that God has given you? Give generously. Give generously to church ministries that are advancing the gospel message and are advancing the kingdom of God. Open your homes generously. Provide a nice meal for people. Give them the very best that you've got. Spoil them a little bit with your hospitality. you have special talents? Use them generously. Use them often. Don't hold them back. Because soon, your earthly money, your home, will be gone. Soon, your fingers will no longer be nimble enough to crawl across the fretboard of guitar. Soon, your fingers will no longer be nimble enough to reach all the keys on your keyboard. Soon, your voice is going to sound haggard and gravelly. You'll no longer have the ability to make beautiful music. Use your assets while you have them. Put them to work. Now, with that being said, I want you to know, I strongly believe that you prepare for your future, prepare for your retirement. You do the best you can to care for your families and to provide for whatever unforeseen events may arise down the road. But I want you to know that if you reach the point where your priority is gathering more stuff so that you have more stuff, you've got a problem. These are signs, and if I could put it all together for you, Jesus says, you can't love the things of this world and claim that you love me at the same time. Listen, you either love the things of this world, you either love the luxuries of this world, you either serve money, you either serve your pursuit of money, or you serve me. That's what he's saying. See, the two are mutually exclusive. If you love the world, the love of God is not in you. That's what the Word teaches. And James says, test yourself. See if your faith is real. See if it's genuine saving faith. If your lifestyle, if your patterns of life, if your handling of the things that God has entrusted to you in this world give evidence that you love the world, if they give evidence that you prefer the comforts of this world and the things to be found here, friends, ask yourselves the question, is it possible? that the love of God really is not in me. That's all I'm saying. I'm not telling you that it is or it isn't. I'm just saying, James says, test yourselves. And there's no greater way for you to determine the genuineness of your faith than the stewardship of the assets that God has given you. Father, I thank you so much for your mercy. I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you, God, for blessing me and my family, I thank you for the favor that you continue to pour out on everyone in this church day after day. And Lord, I pray that when you look at us, when you look at this church body, I pray that you would be honored and that you would be blessed by the way we use the things you've given us to bring glory to your name, to bring the gospel message to, this, uh, to the lost people of this world whose system is failing and collapsing. I pray, God, that you would plant deeply in our hearts a burden to be about the Father's business. Even during difficult times, like the ones we're in now, let our focus be the kingdom of God and your righteousness. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.